Hi, I'm Seth Gumry, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations influencing higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their futures. Today, we are talking to Dr. James Henderson, president of the University of Louisiana System, a public multi-campus university system. Dr. Henderson has dedicated his career to serving the people of his home state of Louisiana. He is heading ULS with goals to produce the most educated generation in Louisiana's history and drive growth in partnerships, research, and recruit a world-class faculty who educate and enrich students and communities. Dr. Henderson has served as president of his alma mater, Northwestern State University, and chancellor of Beausire Parish Community College. He holds degrees from Northwestern State University, University of West Florida, and a doctorate of management from the University of Maryland University College. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Henderson. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for, for having me. You have an obvious dedication to improving education in Louisiana. You also worked in business prior to higher education. What inspired you to change career paths? And can you share more about sort of your pursuit of, of academic administration? I certainly can. You know, there were really two factors involved. One was 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 family. You know, sometimes in uh, in my line of work where I was in hospitality industry, I was you know working 80, 90 hours a, a week, and uh, went to went to work a couple hours after uh, my first two children were born. That's not really the best approach to life and to marriage and to family. Uh, and so uh, I was born to, into a family of educators and we used to always, I used to laugh with them and, and make fun of them. You guys couldn't make it in the real world. This is really the more important aspect of that. I noticed in the real world, uh, there were a lot of challenges uh, facing people. And especially uh, when I would work with folks that were earning extraordinarily low wages, but seemed to me to have all of the, the capabilities, all the traits, the characteristics of people I'd seen be successful in other ventures or in other lines of work. And I realized uh, the difference was uh, primarily education or access to education. And, and that started to have weigh on me uh, it, to a great deal. And, and, and conspiracy of circumstances, some opportunities opened up, uh, found that applying the management skills I had developed, my journalism skills I developed in, as an undergrad were a pretty powerful mix for leadership in any context, even in what I consider one of the most challenging leadership uh, applications, which is education. And if you apply some of those tools in a very uh, uh, collaborative way, you can really open doors of opportunity for, for a lot of folks who've been forgotten in the past. And that's that's really what's been driving me in this work for, for some time. I want to just switch a little bit to talk about the, the University of Louisiana system. It's The strategic framework is, is focused on several pillars to ensure success, right? How were each of those pillars developed for such a large system? And you, you serve over 90,000 students across, across the state. Yes, sir. You know, we, our approach to this kind of work is through frameworks. And, uh, you know, and, and strategic planning is, is ubiquitous across the country. And, and there are a lot of folks that spend a lot of great time with that. We create frameworks, frameworks that are supposed to be uh, uh, directive, to be a, a compass, if you will, to inspire these nine institutions to work towards some collective ends. And uh, my first year, about six years ago, I, I brought the nine presidents together, divided them into groups and gave them different areas of focus and said, listen, we're gonna come up with some systemic goals uh, that don't define your institution, but instead they they added a, a, a notion of systemness to our work. 
uh, we focused on some key areas that, that, that aren't dissimilar to anyone else in higher education. They were, you know, around growing educational attainment and degree attainment in the state of Louisiana. Historically, in Louisiana, you could be successful if you had a strong work ethic and a little bit of common sense. And outside the windows in my office, one overlooks the, the Exxon Mobil refinery, the other overlooks the Mississippi River. And those have been foundations of our economy for a century. But the work associated on that, that, that takes place on that river and that refinery has fundamentally changed. And now we need to develop more and more Louisianans. And so we, we came up with a, a plan to create the most educated generation in Louisiana's history, but recognize that that not all populations have been historically been served well. And we have to be very, very purposeful in elevating all in Louisiana. The second one was on research and economic development, which are key benefits of our system and of, of higher education in general. You know, collectively, we have a $10.9 billion economic impact on the state of Louisiana, one of the most significant industries that exist in this state. We have an opportunity with that, but we also have an obligation to ensure that we're being very practical in our research pursuits, that we're advancing the quality of life for Louisianans and doing work that is relevant to, to those lives and uh, and bringing partnerships to, to, to bear when leveraging uh, resources can result in, in in a scale that we couldn't achieve on our own. And the third was the fiduciary responsibilities we have, but we we, we viewed our response our fiduciary responsibility a little bit different. It wasn't about audits and it wasn't necessarily about finances. It was about looking at our most precious resource, which is our human capital, our employees, our faculty, our staff. And we want to ensure that we create the conditions that allow us to recruit, retain, and develop the world-class faculty and staff that are the heart and soul of our institutions. Uh, we thought that was the most important fiduciary obligation on our on our plate. And it, look, that's a work in progress. We've uh, we've made some progress in that regard in terms of compensation, but more importantly, I think we've given folks a sense of purpose and their role in realizing that purpose. And so the, those three pillars uh, form our strategic framework and, and they've helped shape a lot of work by a lot of folks that are benefiting Louisianans every single day. And taking that framework, I mean, with with such a large variance amongst the nine system universities, how does that boil down to each of those institutions? How do how do you balance the different needs of those institutions and of the student bodies that they serve? And then, as always, I think this is always a big question in in education: how do we how do we drive towards consensus and and take those initiatives forward? I think this is always the thing we're 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 working on and trying to get better at. Yeah, you, you nailed the challenge. I, I, uh, I have nine university presidents that report to me. And of course, I report to a 16-person board. But being very open and being very transparent and bringing folks together, I've got outside my office is, a, is kind of an open space that used to be filled with empty cubicles. And we tore the cubicles down. And we put a big horseshoe-shaped couch. And so the first time I brought the presidents to sit around that couch, and they weren't at a boardroom table with a closed door where they can, you know, put their papers in front of them on a table and they have to sit there open on a couch. It changed the whole dynamic of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But I started with this notion uh, that as we build systemness, regression to the mean is simply not an option. That we have to pursue this work so that each of these nine institutions, very distinct in their missions, their cultures, their histories. You know, we have a, a Carnegie R1 institution in Lafayette. We have uh one of the most iconic HBCUs in the country at Grambling State. We have an urban research institution. We have regional universities. We uh, have STEM-focused universities. Uh, each has to be the absolute best manifestation of its mission it can possibly be. And then we leverage that individual excellence towards some collective good. And, and they bought in. 
And it's, it's, it's hard work. It's delicate work. They realize when they work collaboratively with me and with each other that we can achieve some things. And that's, that's realized in, in some very specific ways. You know, we've had five named storms hit Louisiana in the last mm. two years. And when I saw institutions immediately reaching out to their sister institution in Lake Charles and providing accommodations for students and access to, to, to learning supports, academic supports and student supports and counseling, that's a, that's a product of systemness. When I see all of the institutions coming together at the legislature to advocate for one institution that has a very specific need, uh, that's systemness. And then we can work together to achieve the, the goals of the strategic framework. I am more bullish on higher education in Louisiana and its impact on the people than I ever have been. And it's because we have developed this notion of system in the UL system. Taking that that notion of systemness and, and thinking back to when you were in the workforce and seeing all the challenges that other workers had, right? And I think one of the one of the challenges out there for many people and one of the difficulties for many universities is is reengaging learners who didn't complete a degree, right? And the challenge for workers who started a degree possibly took on some of that debt and, and weren't able to get to the finish line for for whatever reason. To answer this, and I know that the system has developed the complete LA uh, program. Can you can you talk a little bit more? about that? We have 653,000 Louisianans that have some college and no degree. That's a huge number for our state. And effectively, they have been denied the opportunity to, to achieve their potential. And so that was one of those areas where systemness comes to play, where we can collaboratively work together to develop a model that targets those 653,000 adults, knocks down the barriers for reentry, right? And it can be administrative barriers. They can be procedural barriers. It can be the barrier of an imposition on our most precious commodity, especially the most precious commodity of the working adult, which is time. You know, when an adult decides I can be more, I need to get a college degree. And the first thing they do is they go onto a, a, a college's website, they find an application, and then they have to start thinking about where do I find my immunization records? And every one of those little barriers is enough to derail someone because they've also got to feed the kids. They've got to get work done for the next day. They've got to find a way to find some sleep so they can perform at work. And this can just be an imposition. It can be too much of a barrier to overcome. So we created a model where we have coaches that from the minute you express interest in returning to college, they work with you to knock those barriers down. They're their single point of contact that will stay with you from from the very beginning all the way to you walk across the stage with a diploma. And there was a, a student from, from UL Lafayette. She posted uh, a picture on social media. She had just picked up her, her cap and gown at the bookstore and she had her 10 year old daughter with her. And she says, you have no idea what this picture means to me because the last time I was on this campus, I was coming to resign. And my 10 year old daughter was seven months in my womb. And I never wanted to come back because I never thought this was a place I was successful. But now I'm coming back because of Compete Louisiana as a college graduate with my daughter to pick up my cap and gown. And when you see those images and you hear a student's story like that, you just have to pause and say, you know what, I, I'm not worthy to be in this work. And you go at home and you lay awake thinking that I do everything possible to create another student story like that. And that's the motivation that drives everyone associated with Compete Louisiana. And that's the system staff that are engaged in that. Certainly the institutional staff at our universities are engaged with that. And you can tell that story now. We've had 500 graduates in the last year alone. Uh, we expect that number to increase dramatically. 
that's when you know you're doing meaningful work. And I'm just so blessed to be able to do it. What do you take from the program? Because this is this is an issue nationally, right? This is not just an issue in in Louisiana. And I look at the work you're doing to remove those barriers. I think in higher education, we don't we don't think we're putting barriers in the way, right? Is there anything that you look at, any any parts of the program, any sort of innovative parts of the program that you look at and say, these these are things that we need to be thinking about nationally to try and engage more students? Yeah, and I think it's important to, to, to make this point, is that a lot of those barriers were, were erected with the best of intentions. And we have people in place, professionals in place that we call barriers are processes and procedures that they own, and they put a lot of value in. And so I have to be careful not to be too dismissive of that. We have to start with the end in mind. And the end is producing a student, a graduate, is prepared for life and career success. And that anything that can derail that has to be evaluated from a value-added perspective. It's the old lean manufacturing approach to, to examining your, your processes. Does the value that this step in the process add to the end result outweigh the cost associated with that? And some of the barriers that we put in place, the answer is resoundingly no. Now, the great thing with having a coach that leads these students through this path, they're familiar with the uh, the nomenclature. They're, they're familiar with the process. So uh, they're able to get to the bottom of an issue very quickly. And then they're able to connect with this network, this system of nine institutions. Hey, listen, we ran into this barrier getting this student into Nickel State University. Have you had this issue at Northwestern State? And Northwestern say, so you know what? We just had the same issue yesterday. All right, let's find a solution, a common solution that, so we don't run into this barrier again. And it, it just allowed the power of networks of, of individuals who are focused on the, the same goal to solve seemingly inconsequential problems that have consequences beyond explanation. You're very right in that these are these are pieces that that somebody owns. And it is, it's so important to recognize where those things are, why they came along, and then how to help someone through or, or over the barriers. Not maybe a barrier is the wrong word for it, uh, depending on your point of view, but yeah, how to help someone perhaps, get, right? get over that hurdle. That's correct. That's right. What role do you see industry partnerships playing to help learners finish their degrees? They're, they're essential. A lot of businesses have tuition reimbursement programs. We all know this. And yet they're woefully used for a student's benefit. And it, it's because one, that there's a lack of awareness or or it's a, it's a reimbursement process, for example, and, and I just don't have the, the cash up front to spend to go to school, or I'm not really sure what paperwork is needed to, to access this. And so what Compete Louisiana does is it, it creates a framework of a program where we're able to go to these employers that have already stated that we value the development of our employees. We want them to be successful. We want them to continue and, and to become lifelong learners. And so now we've got a framework that says, wait, I can apply this program I've got, whether it's a tuition reimbursement or a, a bonus plan for students to a framework that makes a lot of sense. And if we're smart, we can put our financial policies in the posture that minimizes the financial impact on a student on the upfront, especially when they have a reimbursement piece. Uh, and it's just putting people at the table uh, to have a conversation around, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what you're doing. If we just make some little tweaks here, we can blend, bring this together and we're going to achieve outcomes uh, far beyond anything we're doing right now. We can bring things to scale. And the, the industry partners that we've approached, both at the national level and certainly at a local level, have, have loved the concept and they, they want to be a part of it because they, 
they understand that their future depends on developing a talented workforce and investing in their human capital, if you will. And speaking of the financial side, the system has a has a u- new and unique scholarship program, the the Reginald F. Lewis Scholars. Tell us a little bit more about it and then the effects you see happening on some of the participants. So the Reginald F. Lewis Scholars Program is maybe the single most meaningful piece of work I've ever been involved with. We started uh, our systemic work with, as I mentioned, some populations that have been underserved historically in Louisiana. We developed some diversity, equity, inclusion plans. And listen, you can su- subscribe to diversity, equity, inclusion from a moral standpoint. You think it's the right thing to do. I happen to think that. But even if you don't, if you don't understand the business imperative of serving a diverse clientele, diverse base, then then you're not going to be successful in the 21st century. So we got past some of these this reactionary noise that sometimes you hear around this. And as we were moving this work forward, I happened to be introduced to Lloyda Lewis, who is the widow of Reginald F. Lewis. Reginald F. Lewis grew up on the streets of Baltimore, uh, went to an HBCU, was the first person ever admitted to Harvard Law School without applying to the school. He led in the late 80s, he developed this concept called the leverage buyout and purchased Beatrice Foods, a a European conglomerate, became the first African-American billionaire. Spent a lot of his time giving back to causes that were meaningful to him, advancing and creating pathways for uh, for other black males. When we looked at the, the data around our system, we saw that one particular population was succeeding not at the levels of everyone else, and it was black males. And, and two extraordinary leaders from, from our schools, uh, Gabe Willis at Southeastern and Kedrick Nicholas at, at McNeese State, had come through our Management Leadership Institute, a system initiative to develop leaders. And they said, we want to have a black male summit. And I said, you know what? I, I, I think it's a great idea. We're going to bring Dr. Claire Norris, who leads these, these efforts for us. Together, we're going to have a conversation about it. About a month later, she calls me. She says, what do you think about a scholars program where we take two rising sophomores from each of our institutions that have demonstrated the grit, determination, the potential to be representatives, to, to provide representation? And I said, I think it's a great idea. And we approached uh, Lloyda Lewis with it. She blessed the idea. And that became the Reginald F. Lewis Scholars. They go through a curated educational experience with internships, externships. They have retreats. They have professional development. They'll have study abroad opportunities. I'll be taking uh, the first cohort of 18 uh, to France next uh, next spring uh, to sit through lectures at the Sorbonne, uh, University of Paris, which has produced 33 Nobel Prize winners, six Fields Medal winners. They'll, they'll walk the banks of the Seine River where people used to gather in the, in the 13th century because they knew that listening to lectures and, and learning and developing themselves was the path to social and economic mobility. They'll understand those foundations of science and the origins of democracy and, and why when we adopted our constitution in 1789 and the French Revolution of 1789, they're on their fifth republic and we're on our first and the reasons why. And it will elevate their vision. I was there with two scholars uh, right before Thanksgiving last year, standing in front of a, a painting of Pascal and Descartes in conversation. And their eyes were wide with wonder. And then they kind of narrowed and they started realizing the opportunities. I've seen these young men, the first cohort has gone through their first year, totally transformed. But their transformation is, is really almost second to the transformation I've seen of everyone working in this program because they realize the potential of humans that you've taken a purposeful effort to invest in. You've given them an opportunity to be all that they can be. And these young men are defying 
every, any reasonable expectation. And it is uh, remarkably enriching work. It's an amazing program. How do we take those programs and, and scale that work? Yeah. Right. And, and every student is different. Every student's, you know, what they want to learn, where they want to go is, is also different. I know this is obviously the mission of, of higher education. That's right. H- how do we do that? How, how do we invest on, on such a scale into students to, to have that moment where they're sitting there looking at that painting, whether it's a painting or an electrical circuit board or whatever it is where they have that eyes wide moment that then narrows and, and brings into focus that thought of there's just so much more and there's there's so much here that we can think about and do. I will tell you the way that you can't do it. And the way you can't do it is to try to just replicate every best practice you've ever seen. The reason these kinds of things are successful is because you have people like Dr. Willis and Dr. Nicholas and Dr. Norris, who are at a, a particular level in the organization to see a problem and they want to try to solve it. And they felt empowered to call their system president and say, hey, we've got an idea. It's my role. And, and, and sometimes those of us that are at the top levels of organizations feel like we have to do everything. Sometimes what we have to do is create the circumstances where everybody else can do these things that have uh, very significant impacts. Uh, I used to tell people uh, when I was at a, in a previous role that, that I'll know that the organization is doing what it can do when we're doing game changing work and I'm reading about it in the newspaper because I've lost complete control of everything. That's when you know you have the organizational masses working toward this collective end. We've got to create the conditions that allow that to happen, that allows each of these. I've got 8,000 faculty and staff that work for us. Each one should feel like they have a role to play in the success of our students and the success of our communities. I think that we've got that in place, but that's how you do things at scale. Can't be top down. That's great. The podcast is called Rebuilding the American Dream. It might be supporting the American dream. I'm not sure that we need to completely rebuild it, but what does the American dream mean to you and, and how have you seen it realized in your life? So I love the name of this podcast. And, and when you think about the American dream, it's, it's an ideal and it's, it's an ideal that still is not fully realized, but it's an ideal where every American has the opportunity to realize his or her full potential, that they believe that their most audacious aspirations are within reach and they can reach them, or at least they, they feel empowered to try to reach them. That's the American dream. And, and, I've, and I've seen it realized in, in the faces of students. Holly Conway, who was a, a performing arts student who is now working on Broadway. And, you know, with social media, you're able to stay in touch with these students. And I get to watch as their, their dreams emerge. Or it could be uh, Darren Baptiste, who is working with one of the largest industrial contractors in the world, Turner Industries. Uh, I saw he was doing a trade show and in Houston when five years ago he was a student just trying to make it to graduation. Or it could be any student that you see when they come to to school that first day or come to orientation and they have this deer in the headlights look and they're just lost and you might help them find a class. And then just a few years later, they walk across the stage with a piece of paper that says, you've accomplished something, you've accomplished something meaningful. And then they take that piece of paper on all of the knowledge, skills, and abilities and capabilities that are represented by that piece of paper. And they go out and do meaningful work to advance themselves, to advance their communities, to advance society. There are 18,000 stories like that that come through the UL system every single year. I only get to know a few of them, uh, but my gosh, they just make you wake up in the morning and say, how can I do more? 
And you're you're actively engaged online on on Twitter. If you could influence an individual contemplating college or their future with a tweet, what advice would you give to them? Uh, you know, listen, my, my Twitter feed has has recently become dominated with pictures of my grandchildren. Uh, that's what <laughs> happens when you reach a certain age. But but what, if I was put a single tweet, uh, I'd actually quote my favorite philosopher slash longshoreman Philip Hoffer, who said. 50 years ago, that in, in times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. A university pathway, a pathway to a degree, gives you more than just a piece of paper that, that says, hey, here are the things I can do. It gives you the core capabilities, the communication skills, the critical thinking skills, the cultural competence, the self-reflective awareness, the resilience to succeed regardless of what the future throws at you. It creates not someone who is learned and has achieved a degree as an endpoint, but someone who is a learner that's going to continue to evolve over a lifetime. And that's that's the message that we've got to impart to students. Maybe Philip Hoffer's quote is not the way to reach the youngest or the, those that are emerging, but taking that quote and what it means and finding a, put it in a, putting it in a language that resonates uh, shows young people that their potential is boundless. Thank you so much for all of your time, Dr. Henderson. It's It's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast today. Oh, the, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for your work and thank you for, for putting these messages out. They matter. You've been listening to me, Seth Gumry, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. Find out more on our website, americandream.fm, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Degree Insurance. Until next time.